From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga, and it has been a little while, friends. It's been a long time. I did not intend to take this long between episodes. To be honest, I was pretty worn out by the end of the fall, 2020. With the election coming up, I knew there wasn't going to be a lot of room in people's minds and thoughts for a while. Little did I know how accurate that would turn out to be. So my month, my month off turned into a couple, stirring a little Christmas COVID, We're all recovered now, thankfully. And here we are kicking off February 2021 with a wonderful conversation from one of the most interesting and intelligent people I know. Dr. Paul Lim is a bit of a Nashville legend. I've heard him speak in different places over the years, and every time I'm just like, that guy is a rock star. Uh, He's not a rock star. Actually, he's an author and a professor of history, among other things, at Vanderbilt University. He's a scholar and just... Brilliant. A couple years ago on the podcast, I talked a lot about the NIFW, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. I interviewed Missy Wallace, who was running that program at the time. And this past fall, uh, I started their year-long intensive fellowship. It's a program called Gotham. It's sort of a half theology, half work and leadership intensive. It's like nine months long. It is a lot of reading. All the big books I always wished that I had read before, Luther, Calvin, Augustine, Tim Keller, a lot of Tim Keller, N.T. Wright. And then every week we meet, sadly via Zoom, and then Paul freaking Lim teaches us about what we've read each week, and it is kicking my butt, and it is like one of the highlights of my weeks right now. Getting to know Dr. Lim and learn from his wisdom in a small group setting this past number of months has been incredible, and I cannot wait for you to get to know him a bit over this next hour. But first... I want to challenge you to join me in partnering with Food for the Hungry by being part of the Chicken of the Month Club. This fall, we talked about it a lot. $28 a month goes to provide two chickens for a family in need somewhere in the world. It might sound like a little thing, but it is not. Chickens provide daily eggs, which gives protein to kids who otherwise wouldn't usually get any. Chickens reproduce so quickly that before you know it, you've got a business on your hands, selling eggs, selling other chicks. It turns out that something like the Chicken of the Month Club has real opportunity to turning kids and families' lives around, people in poverty all around the world. And my friends at Food for the Hungry have been doing this work for a long time. They operate in countries all across the globe. Their goal is to show up and bring Christ's love by meeting needs and eventually leave communities self-sustaining, giving them the tools to help themselves. One of the simplest ways you can do that is joining the Chicken of the Month Club. We've been doing it now for eight or nine months, and it's been just wonderful. Every month, we actually get an email that tells us about the life of a chicken who went to one of the families and how it helped. And if you sign up, you do get this amazing coffee mug uh, that says Andrew Osinga's Hot Chicken of the Month Club. It's great. It's sitting here on my desk, and I love it. I look at it every day. But what I love more is knowing that that $28 a month is doing massive good somewhere in the world. So this fall, I invited you to join me. But this spring, I want to challenge you to join me. I think together we can do a lot of cool things by joining up with Food for the Hungry and the Chicken of the Month Club. You can find that at fh.org slash pivot, and you will get the coffee mug, and more than that, 
you will get the sense of satisfaction and knowing that you are putting good into the world where otherwise there would be none. And that good takes the shape of two chickens. And now, guys, we're back. The pivot is back. I'm so glad. Oh, it feels good. And I'm so excited for you to get to hear from my friend, Dr. Paul Lim. Well, Paul, it is so great to get to be with you in person because I've been watching you over Zoom for <laughs> six months or whatever now. Right, right, right. Uh, well, you uh, said something last week, actually, that I thought, oh my gosh, I want to hear more about what that is. Hmm. You made a little aside hmm. about how you learned English. Right. You just kind of threw this little fact out and then went on with your point, And I was like, huh. okay, I would love to hear more about that. What could, I wonder if we could maybe start... Uh, at that point in your story. Sure. Is that okay? That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, hello, everyone who is listening or uh, engaging um, in this way of podcast. Uh, you know, I, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm in Nashville now, been here for 15 years. My life began in Seoul, South Korea, uh, born in 1967. I shared this in a public format at a conference in Ottawa, Canada about four years ago, uh, three and a half years ago, maybe uh, November 2017. Um, it's on YouTube and it's a, it's a, it's a testimonial called uh, From Atheist to Christian at Yale. I was asked to talk about my own life journey and I, I, am, I cringe when people ask me to do it only because... Mm. That sort of navel-gazing is not something that I enjoy doing, partly because, not that I'm ashamed of my life far from it, because as a, as a Christian, what I have come to acknowledge is the, the sovereignty of God. That means God, who is in loving and gracious control of all things, um, has guided my life in such a way that as I look back retrospectively, I can say that God knew exactly what God was doing. I didn't, at many moments of my life, I didn't believe in God. And even when I did believe in God, I had some doubts as to whether God knew what God was doing. But so my life began in South Korea. At age nine, my father was incarcerated um, as a political prisoner uh, on a trumped up charge. And I didn't see my father. He was in and out of prison for about three years. So life was tremendously hard. Um, he was, uh, we were living in a very nice house at the top of a hill with a chauffeur and a sort of a, you know, fairy tale kind of story. And then next thing you know, your father is in jail and you are having to move to your mom's friend's basement oh with gosh. no bathroom. And so my life went from being very much glowing in the brilliance of life, catapulted into this kind of deep, deep nadir of darkness and shame. Uh, from that moment on, I didn't really tell my friends where I lived. Mm. I used to have friends come over to our house a lot, play together. Um, but from third grade onward, I think the journey began and there was uh, one of shame, darkness, and just invisibility. And life went on. My father was released from prison, but I think life became uh, incredibly hard for him and thus our family. So yeah. when I was 15, my family moved to America. So as a boy growing up in, in Korea, and this is the point that I mentioned, right? So the, the first time I, I met white people 
or these two uh, Mormon missionaries, and they taught me and my sister and a bunch of other people English. And I do remember this very distinctly. My uh, cousins lived in this other city called Incheon, which is about an hour and a half away from Seoul. And I went over there and I was playing with my cousins and I, I saw these two, I think they might have been missionaries too, I don't know, two, because when I see two people walking, you know, <laughs> together, even on Hillsborough Pike, I think they yeah. might be, you know, uh, on their Mormon mission assignment. I walked up to them because I think I, my cousin challenged me to do it and I asked him, what time is it? And they said what time it was, and I ran back. You know, my heart was racing, and and so I. <laughs> and then next thing I know, a couple of years later, my family <laughs> were on on board this jet to come over to LAX. So, and my gosh, you know, life really totally changed, right? So um, I was a happy-go-lucky guy, even though my life was dark. But you know, you try to see the the glass that is. You know, even though it is like, you know, barely full, but you just believe that it's full. So I think just mm. there's some kind of, you know, will to life, you know, and, and trying to find reasons to, to be happy. But that got really dashed to the ground when I came to America. My high school years were dark. was They were hard. So I went to high school in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and things were not easy. And why did you guys end up in Cherry Hill, yeah, New so Jersey? Yeah, the, so the reason being that um, my mom's older sister... Uh, lived in Philadelphia. So we initially settled in Philly. And then I think uh, they thought that it would be better for us to move out. And we were also living at that time in my aunt's basement. So I have something against living in basements that I wouldn't buy a house with a basement. You know, just, I don't like basements because it just conjures up all kinds of memories of my life journey. Oh, man. Half kidding, but I mean, half true too, I guess. I haven't really thought about that. But so from our aunt's basement, and she was very nice to us. You know, we went to a small apartment on uh, Highway 38, I think, uh, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So in Cherry oh. Hill, there are two parts of Cherry Hill, two sides of Cherry Hill, east side, west side. Mm -hmm. Uh, in this case, east side is the richer part and the west side is not. So we, we settled in, in the west side. So because it was a proximity, my parents were working at my aunt's dry cleaners. And so it was about 20 minute drive. So we went there, didn't really know anybody. And so we started going to um, church there and it just wasn't a good fit for me. High school years were truly, you know, it's a, it has, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny because I'm 53 now. My high school years were, let's say, from 16, I mean, 15 to 18. Mm -hmm. Those three, four years, uh, three and a half years in America, then I went off to college, still kind of cast a long shadow in the way that I see my life. And, you know, it's just incredible. So I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. <laughs> no, you, you're definitely not the only one. And so then I asked myself this question. How does the gospel really address my soul in such a way? Mm. I mean, if if the gospel, if the Christian journey is part of healing of my memory, because I think we are what we remember in a way, right? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think, no, think about it like this. Let's say I, uh, because of Alzheimer's or whatever, um, God forbid, but let's say that is my lot, you know, let's say 20 years down the road. I don't remember anything about my life journey. Then what am I? What is the sum total of my life's existence as I remember it, right? Yeah. I mean, so I think it does really kind of behoove us to think about the power of memory. And and I think to me, the gospel story is really, uh, you know, encountering Jesus and progressively kind of journeying with him means, it seems to me, kind of healing of that. But then sometimes I look at my own life story and the fragments therein, and I am sometimes disappointed, like, 
how come the gospel hasn't healed me of this yet, right? I mean, there, there are parts of my life journey, those fragments that I don't want to think about and certainly not talk about. But you know what, hmm. Andrew, I think being asked this question does help me to actually confront it, to like look at it. To, to revisit that. You know, it's like one of those things like, oh, you dread, you know, I don't know, you know, if you have some pictures like, oh, I can't believe I look like that or something like that. I mean, that was me, you know, and, and I think, um, so I learned English to, to, add, to go back to your question. So I didn't really, my mom thought that I'd, I'd gone crazy because she would hear me mumbling in the bathroom. Okay, so unpack this. Was this in the big house? Was this like... Oh no this no no! This is at this in that in, in that apartment in on, on Highway 38, oh, Route 38 oh, okay, in Trail, okay. New Jersey. Okay. So, so learning English in Korea, yeah, you do it, but it wasn't. None of it worked when I came to America. You see what I mean? Okay. So let's say you're learning Spanish. I have a daughter who's to... done like five years of Spanish, and we go order food on Nolensville Road. She's like, I don't know what they're saying. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm talking about, right? I mean, like, so the sort of you know immersive experience in a language training may not mean anything. When so, I think the best thing is to to throw yourself into that yeah. cultural environment, linguistic environment. I I realized none of it worked. Hmm. None of it worked. So we go to uh, we go to McDonald. I mean, we go to some place in Disneyland, and and I think you know. So this is when we first came to America. My uncle lived in L.A. Uh, he lived in Simi Valley, and but he took us to you know the usual touristy spots, right? Uh, Disneyland, Magic Mountain, or whatever. And I think I remember it was at Disneyland. I think we were ordering some food at some fast food place, and all my family members thought that since you know English, why don't you order for us? So I was given the I was the designated orderer, and I think the the lady asked me what I wanted to drink, and here's the thing. So in Korea, Seven Up or Sprite, they're called ciders. Oh, really? Yes, C I D E R. Yeah. But here, cider means usually apple cider and not Seven Up or Sprite. Yeah. I, 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 I've not met a single person who would look at a can of Seven Up and Sprite and it says there is cider. They yeah. think you're like what you know. So. I confidently say I want cider, and there's a long line, right? And, yeah, oh, and, and yeah. I'm very self-conscious, and so far it's going well. I, I've ordered burgers and fries, and that's easy to do, but drinks I thought equally as easy, and I said cider, and she said, what? And to this day, when somebody says, what? Again, it triggers, like, so there's a trigger. Like, so I, I, I've, I've taught my son, you know, please don't say what. When you don't understand something, say, excuse me, a pardon, or come again, or whatever, right? Yeah. And then I kind of froze. And then I said, I thought to myself, maybe I should say cider or cider. So maybe it's an accent mark thing, right? So oh, I said cider oh, and she didn't yeah. get it. Cider, she didn't get it. And I just like, I don't know how it ended, right? You know, and that basically ended my confidence about this English language. Hmm. So that was about January 1983. We moved to Philadelphia. You know, we were there for about 10 days visiting and then come to Philly for a few months, and then a few months later, I go to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Okay. And I realized, gosh, none of it's working. So I, uh, luckily, I well, uh, maybe unluckily, I passed out of ESL, which is like English as a second language class. Yeah. So I was thrown, thrust into this regular English class where we're reading Romeo and Juliet and all that stuff, and I think I was given, so we're doing this class play, I mean, inside which English like, class. You could barely understand that if you're a native I, English speaker. You know, exactly, exactly, and, and so, I'm in that class and I was given some minor, minor role and I didn't show up like that mm. day, you know? And I think my friends were like probably cursing me. I, I don't know what happened. So so I think that all of those factors contributed to me not speaking to anyone live. So I would practice in my bathroom. Like I would kind of like 
you know, have a hypothetical conversation. Hmm. Me and you talking, but it's me and me playing the role of both Andrew and Paul, right? And and my mom is like, is he okay? Yeah. And so she asked me like, are you all right? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. So that's how I learned English. And the other thing was two more things. One was uh, a reading, I don't know if you remember, maybe you're not old enough to remember, Mad Magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it Albert, uh, Alfred Newman? Yeah, 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 the, yeah, Newman, the guy yeah. with the teeth, right? Yeah, 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 speak, right, yeah. Right. So I read lots of Mad Magazine and lots of Sports Illustrated as a way to learn English. Huh. And then back into those days, there was uh, th this thing called Barron's SAT Guide or Princeton, Princeton Review. Basically, they had 40 vocabulary lists. So I basically memorized all of these words. And I was having my own kind of dialogue in the bathroom. <laughs> I was reading Mad Magazine. I was reading Sports Illustrated. I was memorizing all of these words. And somehow I thought by doing so, I will understand the language or master mm. the language. It was a long journey. And I think, you know, by the end of it, and I was off to college. So I think for me, going to college is a real big thing because here is an opportunity for me to put a reset, push a reset button yeah. and reinvent myself. So I think nowadays in our culture, you know, people kind of, you know, whether it's coming out and be, you know, saying I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gay or lesbian on the one hand, or I am, I'm no longer that anymore, or I'm not a Christian anymore, whatever it is that the new kind of taking on of a new identity, mm -hmm. part of me, a very big part of me gets that because to me, going to college was that thing, but then I became a Christian as a junior in college. Mm. So that was a complete makeover too. Well, you and said I, you'd gone to church when you got to New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. So was I think I got to New, uh, yeah. So we went to a Korean church and also that was uh, just a negative aspect of the real thing, meaning that um, <laughs> go to this church and I mean, you, you say you work with Young Life. And, and I think one of the things that I, I have some beef against certain youth ministries, not all. I mean, many, most of the youth pastors are wonderful, but some youth pastors, because they're human beings too, tend to perhaps gravitate towards the cool kids. Mm -hmm. But imagine, as I can certainly imagine or just recall, what if you're not one of those cool kids? Yeah. You're like a doubly damned. Yeah. I shouldn't use a word like that, but you know, you get what I'm saying. People I mean, said like, worse on a double loser. You know what I mean? Like, because I knew that I didn't, I wasn't a cool guy in high school. Yeah. And then I come to church and I had this kind of vague notion that church's grammar of, you know, church's operational grammar should be a little bit different from the operational grammar of dar social Darwinianism in Cherry Hill High School West. Yeah. But then I come to this church. And it's no indictment against the senior minister, no, because he probably didn't know, and and maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't even the way that the youth pastor actually acted, but perception, as I experienced it, right, mm -hmm. and and feeling of exclusion rather than inclusion, really kind of hardened me against the real thing. I mean, I don't know whether mm -hmm. this is true or not, and you can correct me since you've been in music business for a long time. I heard, I did hear this, that Marilyn Manson, you know the. Have you met like? Yeah. Did he go like a Christian school or something? To I have. Effect? I believe he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I, I don't know if that's totally true, but I know yeah. it's at least ur urban legend. Urban but I know, legend. Okay, so I'm not making. But I know it up the again. guy that uh, did all the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Yes. Went to Wheaton. Wes Craven, I think, was his name. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was. He's a Wheaton grad. Right. So, so yeah. I do think that when when you your encounter with the church or Jesus or the gospel is somewhat orthogonal to like the actual reality. Then, then it can have a like totally unintended yeah. disastrous consequences. Me, what happened was going through, going to the youth group meetings on Fridays where you feel like you go to Bible study, no one really talks to you. You go to Burger King and you're, 
you're eating alone sometimes. Mm. And to me, eating alone in high school was one thing. Like, that's okay. I mean, I don't have friends. Coming to church and eating alone was like terrifying. And sometimes we would go bowling and and, uh, bowling alone. There was actually a Harvard sociologist. uh, His book is called Bowling Alone. And so I experienced bowling alone before the book came out. So when I, the book came out, I was like, oh, yeah, I can totally resonate with that. And he is talking about how Amer- life in America, most people are bowling alone. Mm. And I was like, dang it, man, That's, that was my story. So to make matters even more intriguing and infuriating, in my senior year, a- after my first semester, they moved to Wilmington, Delaware. Oh, wow. So I went to a different high school for one semester. Oh, <laughs> Uh, and by then I just could care less. You know, yeah, I spoke right. a little more English out. and I was yeah. like, I'm checked out. You know, I already applied to colleges. I know, I, th- I think I know where I'm going. So, but you know, so my parents are driving me from Wilmington, Delaware to New Haven, Connecticut. And my mom was, went to, I went to Yale. Yeah, okay. So they read, my mom read the entire book of Proverbs, praying that I will gain some kind of Solomonic wisdom as I go to college and embark on this, you know, journey as a, as a. She read it to you on the drive. Yes. Cause it's a seven hour drive and it's like a 31 chapter, 32, 31 chapters. I don't think it takes that long. So, um, <laughs> and when my dad, who didn't say pretty much a single word, the entire drive, when he's dropping me off, he says, son, you're, you're on your own now. You're an adult. And, and he says, you can do whatever you want. He says, but just don't do drugs. Now, <laughs> let me ask you, which parental advice do you think I took more readily? <laughs> and like, you know, yeah, my mom's, right? No, I, you know. So, so I think for me, combine my experience in the local church, combine my repressed nature of not having any social life in high school, I just went nutso in college. That was how you reinvented it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. So I, I, I basically reinvented myself. I said, this is my me. This is mm-hmm. real me. And then I was like, you know, that's how I kind of was when I was in Korea, when I was kind of more self, like more myself. Huh. So meaning like I was happy, I was, you know, well adjusted, enjoying life, enjoying loads of friendships and lots of conversations and you know, so I went on like that, and then and then I uh, became a Christian. And so, at age nine was my dad's incarceration. At age fifteen was immigration to America. At at age twenty one was I would call it invitation to something greater than myself. Mm-hmm. So I think meeting Jesus or encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ was totally shocking to my system, because I think one of the things that I came to realize was almost immediately was like. I can't live, I can't continue, I cannot continue to live the way that I have, right? It wasn't like I had a new ethics teacher telling me, can't do this, can't do that, stop doing that, right? So I think it was a really an interesting phase in my life journey where um, I knew I had to kind of stop. I mean, it was, it was a layers upon layers of new legalism on the one end, but then there's a real core of the gospel truth that I was really kind of relishing, so... I don't know if I mean you would appreciate this. I was actually, uh, from first semester on, I, I, I became a DJ. I did a lot of parties. Like, okay. You know, like f- frat parties as well as like, and that's, you know. that's co- your big book of CDs, right? In that, yeah. At that right, age, right? right. So, yeah, the, the, totally. Like, so then, then I had all, and this was a, in 1986, so this is a kind of phasing out of LPs and EPs and, mm-hmm. and kind of onto CDs, right? So yeah. I, I do a lot of parties where I was using more CDs than, than LPs or, you know, whatever, but love doing that. It was kind of a, again. Okay. Well, well, yeah. And what kind yeah. of music were you 
What, what were you playing? You know, I was like, so I think even to this day, I, I take great delight in introducing new music to my friends. And if they like it, I was like, yeah, this is great. So it gave me a deep sense of satisfaction. So whether it's house music or, you know, synth pop or, so I went from like Tone Look to Erasure on the one hand, yes. Bob Seger to like the Bodines on the other and the, you know, Cure on the one hand and, and Depeche Mode on the, on, you know, on the same route and then Georgia Satellites and you get what I'm saying. I mean, this and just tells me that when, like when the vaccine is everywhere and we can have a party, we need to throw a party party and you need to DJ. I will do it. I will Clearly. do it. And, and, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and Creedence clear, you know, you know, <laughs> they were my guys. And, and, and I think, you know, it was really enjoying that and gave me a sense of deep sense of connection and joy. But then I think what I came to realize was after I became a Christian and was sort of a case of conscience, right? I mean, can I, I don't know. So then I, I threw away all my secular music, like, and then and then I ended up buying them all. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of truly confusing. I mean, because these are the days you may remember. That this. was the era. There that was, was the an era thing. where you back yeah. masking or masking, like back like playback, oh, something yeah. like you know Led Zeppelin songs and like Love Satan or something like that. I mean, like crazy stuff, right? And also, this is where. I think Tipper Gore, Al Gore's uh, wife, was talking about like this is how like rock music is kind of destroying America's soul, and it was all of this stuff that was concurrently happening and layering that with American evangelicalism that I was, you know, kind of foray into my religion that I took seriously was conservative version of Christianity, right? So, mm -hmm. and that meant that at least as it was manifested in my small group of friends and church was that they were kind of not so sure about listening to a lot of rock and roll or house, like whatever. So. I kind of, for a semester or so, I, I stopped DJing. And then my senior year, I said, you know what? This is my last year in college. I'm going to, and people started requesting, you know, hey, can you DJ this party? I said, yeah. And money was good. And, and, and I would do it. And so I think one of the major changes in my life was life is no longer one of conquest or crushing it, right? I mean, because mm -hmm. I think before I was a Christian, it was about conquest, like conquering this goal, right? Or crushing something, right? But then I, I began to realize that, you know what? Maybe life is more about giving and seeing life as, you know, so the fundamental aspect of Christianity, as I understand it now, is that life is a, is a being as a gift, meaning my entire life story is woven with giftings of God. That God, who is the ultimate gift, has given himself to me in many, many, many ways. And my problem becomes my idolatrous self then seeks the gift more than the giver itself, right? Mm. And then, and I realized that I was exchanging that, that's unfair idolatrous exchange led me away from having a healthy kind of mindset of life as a service, life as, life as gift exchange, and rather than me hoarding all those good things, if I were to give it to somebody, let's say my wife, and she gives me the gifts. So let's say I end up with $100 after all, but what if that $100 came about by my giving $100 to my wife mm -hmm. and she gives me her $100, right? You know what I'm saying? Or yeah. something, you get what I'm saying. So it's, it's, that, it's that the economy of grace that actually is the operative principle of my life. I think mm -hmm. that's... I mean, I mean, that's basically what, what this whole faith in work, I think, is about. I think, you know, seeing life as more of a gift economy rather than a conquering economy. Yeah. Um, or I think that's 
what if we were to see it that way? So, I mean, I've kind of jumped fast forward into my life right now. But so to answer your question back uh, again, yeah, that's how I learned English. And I think, and my graduate studies were actually uh, at Cambridge University in, in England. And, okay. And I, I go there. How fun and I, is that? Yeah, I was blown away That's by the fact that these C. people. C.S. Lewis was, right? C.S. Lewis was at Oxford, but he became a full professor at Cambridge. So he spent, he spent both these kind of, you know, the bookends of great, great educational centers. But, you know, so I go to England. I'm blown away, not just by their accent. Because, I mean, I can see through their accent. But, yeah. like, the, the, the use of the language was like, whoa, this is pretty decent. And so I think I became, <laughs> so I had this, like, spiral notebook where I would always, like, write down expressions that I found really cool or like, oh, I'd like to imitate that. You know what I'm saying? So I think for me, it's kind of a, I mean, I think life is like that. Life is, you know, I think the, the Greek word is mimesis, M-I-M-E-S-I-S, which means imitation. Like we imitate people. I mean, whether, if you're a guitarist, I think maybe it's Jimmy Page or Yngwie Malmsteen or whoever, like, like yeah, well, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. imitate that, those those people. Or if you're a speaker, you think of like, oh, who are some of the great orators, you know, whether it is Frederick Douglass or Barack Obama or you fill in the blank, whoever, or great, great speaker, Billy Graham. And you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think we imitate things. So, I mean, that's why, the you know, in Ephesians, you know, uh, Paul talks about how we are to imitate Christ as you imitate me. I mean, you know what I mean? There is a sort of a, a mentoring or discipling relationship that is laid in there. So I think for me, I come to realize, you know, even today, who am I imitating in my life? Like, who hmm. who are my, like, you know, I recently got, thanks to COVID, I mean, I won't mention thank COVID ever, but because of COVID, I should say, I got into cycling, right? And mm-hmm. so I began, because I need to get outside and start doing something, and my doctor thought that I was gaining, becoming borderline obese, so he said, you should lose some weight. So I went out, I bought, went and bought, like, this small bike, and I started riding it. And then you watch like these, you know, cycling videos. And so there isn't- So you're, you got into it. I, 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 I'm getting into it. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm riding hard. And, and, and so, but the point being that l- much of life is who you imitate. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, now I began watching this thing called Global Cycling Network GCN. And these are all British guys like talking about cycling experiences. <laughs> and I find, and, and I find, I find myself drawn to it so much so that YouTube, who knows every viewing habit of mine, suggests on the sidebar all of these videos from GCN. So I was like, yeah, YouTube knows who I'm imitating in my life right now. That's the best barometer of what my mind is set on, right? And Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so what, what were you studying at Yale and what did you so study at Cambridge? I, yeah, so I, I studied uh, economics and then after I became a Christian, I took on philosophy um, as my second area of study. I didn't, uh, so I ended up with an econ major um, and while, um, while in college and also while working a little bit in New York, I became a lot more interested in and curious about the Bible. And I wanted to study, I was en route to, um, headed to law school after working a couple of years in New York. But I thought, I will, before I did that, um, I wanted to, while I was slightly younger, I wanted to go and study Bible and theology at a seminary. My parents thought that that was a terrible idea because they knew, especially my dad knew that I tend to do everything kind of whole hog, like mm-hmm. go all out and no holes barred kind of guy. So he thought like, if you, there's like no way, no turning back, man. I, I know you're not going to go to law school. So if you're going to go to seminary and do whatever that we don't really approve of, I mean, it's, it's good that you're a Christian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess good that you have some morals now, but then don't go all out. I mean, like <laughs> you're not that guy. I remember that my, my dad thought huh. that I would be much better off as a, as a corporate lawyer. And did you think you were going to 
go study for a little bit and then go, yeah, go back no, and be a every intention lawyer? to do so every yeah. intention to do so and then oh man i mean just got it a different plan and i think just my heart began to move more toward um ministry and and so you know i think sometimes life is about gifts that are taken away right so i was mm-hmm. in a pretty uh uh, at that time, you know, a pretty serious relationship with this, uh, um, you know, person, and and because uh, I think we started dating, and and I told her because at that time such was my plan. I'm gonna go to law school. So and mm-hmm. I I don't think that was a conditional element. At least at that time, it didn't seem that way. But then she was like, "Well, <laughs> what's up, man? I mean, like, you're you're not gonna be a pastor. I mean." that's not you. I mean, look at you. You should be a lawyer. And I said, yeah, sure. And, but then I think, you know, it was really hard because I felt like my heart was tugging away at this thing called being involved in pastoral work. Mm. So she said, good for you, not for me. See you later. Wow. Then I continued on serving in this church in Philadelphia and really enjoy doing it. I think I have the utmost respect for people in ministry, pastoral ministry. I think, you know, to me, like whether you're liberal or conservative or that doesn't matter too much. I think when you're serving God in the pastoral context, it's a pretty thankless task. Yeah. And so I I think it was one of those moments where one of my seminary professors thought that I went into his office telling him how hard, like how I was really, how I, pardon the French, like how I sucked as a minister. And he's like, well, I don't know about that, but I think you'd be a great professor. <laughs> you know? And he said, well, he had just come from Oxford. He's like, well, why don't you go to Cambridge and, and do your PhD there and then come back and we can teach together. I was at this small seminary. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, the name has changed to be Missio Seminary, but now uh, at that time it was called Biblical Theological Seminary. And he said, you know, why don't you go and study there and uh, at Cambridge and come back? And you know what? I, I, I didn't know any better. I basically followed his advice to the T. Wow. So I went to Cambridge, did, did my PhD in, in history of Christianity or church history and came back. And when I was ready to come back to biblical, there was no job for me. And I think at that time, my wife and I seriously contemplated the possibility of maybe going overseas. So did you get married before you went to? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. we got married in Philadelphia. My wife and I got married in 96. So this year will be our 25th year anniversary. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's, I think I married up and she kept me around her. So, um. I think for me in my life, God closing certain doors, that door being shut, slammed shut, you know, feels really painful temporarily, but albeit temporarily, but really. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the interesting things that I discovered, and we all discovered this, my life is a, a great one, only if I knew what God was up to. And just, you know, where are you going today? I want to follow where you're going. And I think that rather than having this door to India open, God opened the door to New England. So I, my first teaching position out of the PhD was at a seminary called Gordon-Conwell up in Boston, South Hamilton to be more exact, and spent five years there from 2001 to 2006. Loved every every minute of it. Hmm. Uh, loved the clam bakes. And we lived about 13 minutes away from this fantastic beach, Crane Beach in Ipswich, Mass. And it was really an idyllic setting to start your um, theological journey as a as a professor and as a student um loved it but then got it a different call right so come 2006 june july we're moving here hmm. never in my life did i uh, imagine living in nashville it's what been, brought you here 
Vanderbilt. Okay. Vanderbilt uh, extended a call uh, for me to be uh, assistant professor of the history of Christianity. So my area of teaching and research happens to be Reformation, post-Reformation. So six, 1500 to about 1700, hmm. 200, 250 years, 1750 even. Um, so pretty narrow bandwidth, but that's what historians do. So um, hmm. that's what brought me to Nashville. I thought I wouldn't last this long. I, I mean, I thought for sure I'll be back in the East Coast, you know, sometime. My plans don't always line up with God's. And I think I had my own agenda and I wanted to make sure that God fit his onto mine, right? Mm. It's like God yeah, needed yeah, to yeah. onboard God's yeah. plan onto mine because mine's perfect and God just needs to conform. What a, what, that, that to me is the height of arrogance, right? But then, <sighs> but then. I felt like that's how it was. I mean, I know it's hard to acknowledge it. Maybe it's embarrassing, but I think maybe even my prayer life was basically regarding God as my celestial kind of landlord. You know, I, I pay the rent by doing all the religious acts. And as long as I do all of these religious acts of piety and giving and, you know, whatever, then God is obligated to be, to be gracious to me. And mm -hmm. by being gracious to me means materially speaking, professionally speaking, promotionally speaking, whatever, that yeah. God will basically come through for me. I kept my end of the bargain. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. What's wrong yeah. with you, God? Right. And I think that's, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that that's probably descriptive of a lot of us. I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want to say all of you are like that. I have no idea. Maybe there are much more pious people than you and me, <laughs> I don't even, I, I shouldn't uh, even assume that yeah, about you. I'm sorry. No, no, you, yeah, you, you're safe to assume. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you guys move here. Yep. It's not according to plan. No. I mean. Well, God's plan, but not, not yeah, mine. Yeah, so yes. what, did you, what did you think was going to be the plan? Yeah, so I think when, when I got to Gordon-Conwell, it was, at least to me at that time, a dream job. Hmm. Because there are these faculty, illustrious faculty members whose books I read as a seminary student, I could not actually see myself there because I was, I had this kind of like sense of awe hmm. about the place, about some of the faculty, many of the faculty. And I had to pinch myself like, I'm going to be one of them? What's going on? Hmm. And so I think, you know, I, I, I really did not aspire to get out of there. But then I think one of the things that began to percolate in my mind was, um, there are some people, there is a thing called BTI, Boston Theological Institute. And that means that consortium of theological schools and seminaries and divinity schools would have a meeting, you know, so students could uh, take cross, uh, cross register and take classes. Let's say a Gordon Conwell student could take a class at Boston College or Boston University student could take a class at Harvard Divinity or Harvard Divinity students could take classes at Gordon Conwell as I had the privilege of teaching some of them. And so it was kind of a cross registering system, but also uh, additionally, it had the faculty members getting together and so I would go there, and I remember th walking away from there thinking, you know what, um, some of them, not all, I mean, most of them are really gracious. There was one in particular um, who thought that I probably didn't know anything because I was an evangelical or teaching at Gordon-Conwell. Hmm. And remember, I mean, he kind of communicated that to me, not so obliquely a couple of times. I was like, and he was a lot older than me. I mean, maybe maybe what he thought was true. But then I remember that was one of those kind of gen generating moments where I began to think, hmm, I wonder what it might be like to be in a more liberal context or pro pro university context primarily, mm -hmm. where um, 
you know, maybe people think that I'm smarter than I actually am. You know, I, I guess what I was beginning to kind of map out in my mind was, and this is sort of true, how social location does in some ways shape the way that people perceive you, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. You, you know what I mean? Like, let's say you're in a band and you're playing in a local band that nobody knows about. That's one thing. But then you're now touring with you 2 or, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, whoever. Yeah. And like, you're the session guitarist for some big band and you have the same, same set of skills and experiences, but people are going to think like, wait a minute, this guy must be really good. That's what happened to me, I think. <laughs> I was um, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, Miroslav Wolf, who went from Fuller Theological Seminary to Yale University. Mm -hmm. And Miroslav said to me, you know, I'm like pretty much the same guy, but then people think that I'm instantly smarter because I'm at Yale. Yeah. In a smaller scale, I think something like that happened to me too. And and I, I, I think for me, mm. uh, our life in Nashville has been really a, a, a wonderful, fulsome bag of blessings because I think we got attached to uh, a very good church right away. And then um, we left that church a few years ago to start at Christ Press. But I think, you know, um, it's been a really, I think to me, the vibrancy of the local faith community has really supported me. And also at Vanderbilt, there have been some real good colleagues, both within the Divinity School uh, and as well outside. Because for about eight years of my life, so I've been at Vanderbilt 15 years, eight out of those 15 years, I was um, one of the faculty heads of the Ingram Commons, which is the freshman dorms. And each dorm, each each house will have a faculty in residence. Hmm. So my wife and I and our son lived in Crawford House for eight years. And that meant that it's an extension of my network and really kind of living with students, 150 students for eight years. That's 1,200 students. My goodness. It really was a ministry of presence, you know. Yeah. I, it was not a ministry of proclamation because I wasn't like leading Bible studies or preaching the gospel, but I was practicing the gospel, right? I was trying to be trying to embody the grace of God to the extent that it was possible for me, and I think that was really um, so. I think Vanderbilt has been a truly, truly uh, retrospectively, I see much more clearly. It's been a great blessing. Hmm. I didn't always think it that way, though. You know what I mean? I didn't always think it that way, and there were some pivoting moments where life was kind of hard here and there. And mm -hmm. then, and then I think by God's grace, I mean I think for a couple of years I was. Um, really depressed, for example. And, um, you know, I thought it just, I was in a sort of deep, deep kind of um, funk. Yeah. Probably not as deep as when I was in, uh, when I was, gosh, I guess I, was, I must have been depressed when I was in elementary school. But, you know, when you're like nine or 10, like, how do you even know? You don't have a framework. You don't have know. a framework. Yeah. And it, I mean, that kind of is getting me to think now, like, you know, with all this adolescent psychologists and so on, at what point do you diagnose kids to be like depressed or like- Because mm -hmm. you, you have to know what the norm is to know yeah, what the difference is exactly. from the norm. Exactly. And, and I think some kids are kind of resilient at, at deceiving others. Like, like I, I was like- We learn early. We learn early. Yes. I think you're right. And I think that's, uh, I mean, you know, I- um, I haven't read this book by C.S. Lewis. Uh, uh, I think it's called Till We Have Faces, but I mean, I know, like, I, I shouldn't admit that I haven't no, I read something. No, I love that. Yeah, yeah. But, but if I, so, but I think I know what the book should be about, right? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> because life is a long, long parade of charade, it seems to me. It's, we pretend to be someone that we want to be, but we're not. But we project that image so that we can be more palatable to the mm -hmm. eyes of the ones that we want to impress. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's me. But I think 
so you know what I really enjoy about, uh, you know, if you're totally masked, like, you know, there's a show, right? There is a K-pop show, but it's also in America, like the Masked Singer. Oh, yeah. We, we watched that a little bit. The beginning of lockdown, we watched a couple yeah. episodes of right, that. Right, right, yeah. right. So I think- It's fascinating. It is yeah. fascinating because one of the things is that, you know, okay, you cannot hide, you may be able to, sh- like, if you have masks, they cannot tell what you look like. Mm-hmm. And you know, Andrew- so much of our life is an aesthetic decision. We look at somebody and we're like, mm. we, we think like, wow, that person is super attractive or not. And what if you're not, right? Then, so I think much of my life, I mean, like, yeah, this is like, oh, we're probably pretty deep here and I'm almost embarrassed, but I'll just let it go. Let go and let God, right? I mean, like <laughs> much of my life, I've, I've always felt like I was aesthetically challenged, put just Bluntly, I feel like I was an ugly dude, right? So to me, when my wife said, you're not an ugly guy, like that was like a true revelation. Like, whoa, mm. really? And so to me, back to CS till we have faces, what if we could go, what if life, what if we could live life without knowing what we look like? You know, because yeah. some, looks can not only be deceiving, but looks can be and have been discriminatory. Hmm. Looks that come with our color and complexion and shape and size and all of that, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and it's, you know, we were talking about that book, uh, Latasha Morrison's book, yeah. Be the Bridge. I mean, like talking about intra kind of, you know, communal discriminatory pa- practice based on how dark you are, mm-hmm. right? You know, how, like your complexion, even, yeah. right? So forget like white black dichotomy, but also within a sort of a brown community, a black community, there could be people who, I mean, Morrison talks about the fact that she was discriminated against by her mom and other people yeah. because she was truly dark. And, and other think, people and even her own family. Right, well, I remember, right, uh I worked in India on this project years and years ago for right. a, a couple months. Yes. And as you start to, and I, as a white guy, not yeah. knowing anything, walking yes. over there, you, you know, you hear about the caste system, but a couple of weeks in, you realize that you can tell immediately just by skin color where people are in the system. Yeah. And I never... I'd never, could not have imagined that that was the case. But you start to recognize like, oh, the waiters are this color. The janitors are this color. Right. The executives are this color. Right, right. No, I And mean, there's like, no breaking from that No. There, I mean, know? so I was yeah. talking to somebody who's uh, really into, as an academic, about Bollywood, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Indian movies. And Bollywood's projection of beauty is along this complexion, right? Like, Lighter skin. And then so, so again, back to this till we have faces. I think we really, our life is constructed in such a way and our industries are built upon this premise and prey upon this premise of certain norms that exist. Like this is what beauty is. Mm-hmm. This is what health is. This is what wealth is. This is what the good life is. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm turning 54 this year and I'm just coming to realize like, wait a minute, I've been just held captive to this. But long, I mean, about 15 years ago, I began to have this kind of glimmer of desire. What if we could just talk, you know, when you're like, um, when you're trying to order something from, I don't know, like some back country, you know, sporting goods or something, and then you're mm-hmm. texting with somebody. They don't know what you look like. They're, it's, it's kind of more, to me, it's like an even economy, economic exchange. And so for me, till we have faces, so heaven to me would be a place where none of my aesthetic composition would be held against me, right? Mm. Talking to people of color for, for whom they feel like, and they experience life as because of the way I am colored, the way my complexion is, the way that my social, whatever it is, 
that's usually held against me. Mm-hmm. You know, not just when police cars pull me over, but when I'm just out and about in my life or at work or even at home. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the God, the liberative power of the gospel is that it really kind of liberates me from seeing people and seeing myself based upon color and culture and creed, but really beginning to see the, the beauty of the Imago Dei, the image of God that people carry within them as the inherent reason for one's dignity. Yeah. And so I think that's, um, that's one of the things that I have really come to appreciate about certain readings that I've done. But so um, I should now, having confessed that I haven't read Till We Have Faces and explain <laughs> what that should be about, I should go and actually read it and find out that that's not at all what C.S. Lewis I, I've read a lot of C.S. Lewis and I don't think I've actually read that. But you know that book, I, I've, I've read like, 80 quotes from that book. So I think, oh, I okay. think I know, you know, people quote it all the time. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But I don't, you know, sits on my shelf. <laughs> oh man. So I'm fascinated by this image of this kid mm. in this bathroom yep. in the basement. Yes. Practicing, you know, reading and practicing speaking yep, yep. Uh, to pass essentially, right. To like, to be able to, to, to build friendships and yeah. And and be a part of the culture. Yes. To now someone who writes books and speaks <laughs> all day every day. Right. <laughs> and people pay a lot of money to go to school yes. to listen to you talk. Yes. Do you think about that often? What does it mean to you? Yeah. No. I think that's a that's a fascinating question, actually. Um, so funny, funny bit. Um, I think there is a disproportionate percentage of Korean American doctors who immigrated in the 1960s and 70s. Many of them became either psychiatrists or um, more of them anesthesiologists. Hmm. Because anesthesiologists would come in and talk to you briefly and then they put you to sleep. (laughs) Right? I mean, like, because, you know, you get anesthesia before you get operated on. And so, and I think that was one because it didn't require a lot of explaining and dialoguing with patients. Really? Yeah, yeah. And then the other one was psychiatry was because it wasn't paid that well. So they end up, so there is a hierarchy, a caste system, even in the medical profession. Like, okay, we'll let these kind of young, the immigrant doctors take like jobs that we don't want to do. So when my, when my family moved here, my dad actually said to me, you know what? Um, We want you to be a doctor. I said, okay, what kind of doctor should I be? I said, anesthesiologist, because you don't have to talk a lot. Really? So to me, like when I think back in 1983, my dad sitting me down and said, I want you to be an anesthesiologist because, you know, you probably don't like talking much and this is you. And then fast forward and, and like you said, I mean, I get, yeah, I make a living by talking. Yeah. I mean, like that's exactly what I do. And that's exactly what I did not want to do. <laughs> 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 so when I, and, and, and. It is interesting because um, a few years ago, I was giving a talk, um, a lecture at, at Oxford University, and and I think you know it was to me at that time a sort of height of my academic experience, right? So, yeah. And somehow, it went okay, but then it didn't go great. Hmm. And I'm sitting in this bed. I mean, it was uh, I was hosted by somebody at. Corpus Christi College at Oxford University, and and I was given the presidential suite, and I was there all by myself, and I'm sitting in 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 the bed, and I was I don't know why, but I was crying. I was mm-hmm. crying because, 
and I won't go into the details, but something there, someone said there really triggered me. Hmm. And it was because I wanted that acceptance. I wanted everyone in the room to be wooing and eyeing at, you know, what, what a great performer, you know, paper I gave or talk I gave. And I remember sitting there sobbing and God was, you know, speaking to me as it were, um, you know, am I not enough? Like, why do you need mm. all of these external validations for you to feel okay? And therein lies to me the crux of my struggle. Hmm. Because without all these validations, I feel like I'm less than my true self, I, to be honest with you. But when I actually sit down and talk to people, talk to myself or give my internal counsel, I would say that isn't God enough? Isn't God's validation upon your life enough? And I would say, yes, it should be. Is it? And therein lies my need for the gospel every day, mm. every hour. I mean, that song, you know, I need thee every hour, you know, and and uh, and I think that's, uh, and you know, that old hymn, you know, um, prone to wonder, Lord, I know it. You know, I mean, like, I, I think that's so, sometimes I do get depressed because I was like, why don't I, why am I not more sanctified? Hmm. Why, I mean, and, and then I asked myself this hard question, like, do I desire to do that work to be sanctified? Because, you know, as you were talking about cycling, I am putting in that work. I'm putting in those hours. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as, uh, as our, um, you know, my pastor, Scott Sauls talked about, he was, uh, he was on a very, very different mode last Sunday. He was talking about the fact that how little time we actually put in to fostering a life of piety or life of, you know, practicing the gospel. And he was, in fact, talking about, you know, reading the Bible, for example. He says, you know, like we've spent about 30 seconds to a minute or like verse of the day, and mm -hmm. that's about all there is. Is that how do you actually expect But I'll to read two hours about Donald Trump without flinching. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, we may be spending, you know, I, I, I don't know what your particular you know, media outlet of choice maybe, but, you know, we read people's different tweets or, you know, and, and that's time flies by, Yeah. right? And so I, I think that that is something that I'm coming to realize, you know, I need to actually, if I'm really serious about the the growth that is about, you know, spiritual, because, I mean, here's what, what I, it, it certainly occurred to me um, yesterday, I think, I have a, a group of uh, friends that I text with and, and out of the seven, uh, one, two, three, four, five, out of the six, uh, four, including me, are cyclists. Hmm. And sometimes what we often do is we, after hard training, we post pictures of a heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> Average heart rate, RP, BPM, beats per yeah, minute, yeah. and max BPM. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, we kind of brag about my average and max BPM, the physical heart, but then my, the, the, the metaphysical heart or spiritual heart, hmm. we seldom talk about that. And it really was convicting to me, you know, this is where my priority lies. And it was deeply, and, and I think for me, I think um, the, the distinction between law and gospel, and here I go again, every, every, do, everything I do, I assume the mantle of being a teacher, but pardon me, but like, <laughs> I guess the distinction is if I'm just ultimately left in the dust as a ashamed person, that to me isn't the gospel, right? I mean, the spirit convicts, but also comforts and, and, and I guess conforms us to, to the pattern that, that, that God desires. And so all of that to say that I think, you know, I should, um, 
I should go back. This is only the 22nd day. I think uh, the broken plan of one-year Bible reading plan with my family, I think it's just... <laughs> Thank you for coming by today. Sure. This has been so fun. And you just finished a book, right? Finishing a book. Yeah, You're I'm writing, a book. It. Yeah, okay. writing a book. Yeah. When is that coming out? Do you know? I don't know. I need to... Uh, so I think I uh, kind of sketched out the first draft. Okay. Um, so it's about the transitions in belief about Jesus in between 17th and 18th century England or Europe, but particularly England, about why the divinity of Jesus became more and more um, debated and ultimately rejected by some people, hmm. presaging or prefiguring the, the arrival of the Enlightenment period. Uh, because I think, you know, if you talk to a lot of, so, I mean, put it this way, if you talk to a lot of intellectuals in the year 1620 in England, yeah. Um, most people will say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I believe he was the son of God and he was second person of the Holy Trinity. Hmm. 2020, intellectuals in England, if you talk to them, most of them say, are you out of your mind? So what happened, right? Yeah. And some kind of trace the sort of microcosmic history that the, the beginning of the fissure, you know, the kind of a um, hairline fracture or whatever you call it. So I am always interested in how modern belief came about and so I think I'm kind of my last book was about the the emergence of anti-trinitarian beliefs and so it's kind of dovetailing nicely with the sort of um, the the two dollar word will be Christological shifts hmm. you know how it began to occur so son of God becomes a, just a man to follow or cool like you know Jesus is my homie hmm. saying that Jesus is my homeboy doesn't mean that he's God yeah. Could be my best friend, you know. So I'm kind of tracing. And I think uh, down the road, I am planning to write a more popular level book about Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think I might call it Jesus Now, looking at the global picture of how Jesus is oh, appropriated, wow. yeah. worshipped, or uh, kind of portrayed even, and different uh, religious communities, Christian communities in particular, but not just there. And so, um, oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yep. Thank you. Man. Well, thank you. So it's, so fun to be with you and um, <laughs> thanks for making time to hang and enjoyed and it enjoyed yeah. it immensely how amazing is that guy I told you he's brilliant he talked at the very beginning of a YouTube clip uh, of an interview he'd done of his transition from atheist to believer and I'm going to go ahead and put that YouTube link in the uh, show notes so check that out if you want to learn more about Paul he's got some books out you can find them on Amazon Paul Lim L-I-M I'm so thankful for the time that he has spent to pour into my life and the lives of my fellow people in the class. It's been so great to get to know him. What a cool thing. So guys, fh.org slash pivot, food for the hungry, the chicken of the month club, $28 a month, sends two chickens to families in need somewhere around the world. Please join us. I am challenging you. If you've been listening to me talk about this, thinking, I need to do it, I need to do it, now's the time. fh.org slash pivot. Thank you guys for waiting and for checking this show out this week. We will be back next week and the week after and the week after and the week after. I got a bunch of amazing interviews lined up. It's going to be so fun. And uh, thank you for being with us and joining on this journey. Season six, The Pivot. Have a great day. Be safe, be kind. And now, go do something awesome. Mm -hmm.